Now, before we do, I want to bring up somebody. We've got is any, any tennis players? I know we've got a lot of golfers. Yeah, we've got a lot of tennis players here. And I know Bob Thompson is here. You can see he's a tennis player because look at that jacket he's wearing back there. You know, stand up, Bob. We just want everybody to see that jacket. Come on, stand up. Stand. Only a tennis player can wear that kind of See, isn't that a beautiful jacket? I think that's a beautiful jacket. Bob, Bob's son was one of the great players. Bob's a great, uh, you know, senior player. I'm sorry, you are a senior, Bob, so uh, senior <laughs> players. But, uh, you know, the tournament starts on Wednesday, and we've got him here for a couple of weeks, so we have one of the, uh, the women uh, professionals here, and she'd gone with the Sab- Sabos, uh, Danny and Monica, she had gone to Israel uh, with us, um, I don't know, what's that, three or four years ago, five years ago, I don't know what it was, and four years ago. And so uh, we went, and I got a chance to meet Abby, and she came in. I said, well, Abby, I just want to ask you a few questions. Would you mind coming up? So would you welcome Abigail Spears? Abby, it's so good to see you. It is so good to see you. We love you here at Church at the Red Door. Even only We only get to see you about once a year. But um, tell us a little bit. Uh, I'll just give you a little bit of her background. You turned, you turned pro in 2000. You've had, I don't know, 30-plus uh, victories over the last number of years. And, uh, and let me just say this. Last year, after 17 years of being professional, uh, she won a Grand Slam event with her mixed doubles partner, the Australian Open, last year in 2017, <laughs> which is pretty cool, which is pretty cool. But apart from all that, you love Jesus, and uh, tell us a little bit about your life and about your faith walk and what that's looked like. Um, yeah, no, um, thank you again for having me here, and uh, I um, I was really fortunate and blessed to grow up in a in a family that um, loved Jesus. My parents um, they were saved. Um, I think they came back to the Lord actually um, right before my sister. Um, was born, and uh, um, yeah, so she's 10 years older than me, and so I think there's a lot of growth there um, that my parents had, and um, I grew up in San Diego, and um, I was fortunate to go to Horizon Christian Fellowship, and um, my mom and dad were just really encouraging, and um, I I think it was what you're talking about was fortunate to have people in my life. Every yeah, step tell me, tell me about some of the people in your life as you look back relationally that have really impacted you. Um, I think first of all, my um, my best friend who actually isn't a believer, so if you could pray for her, but I think she's on her way there. Um, she knows I am, and it and because we are so close, I think she kind of reminds me of that when I struggle, um, which is really funny but yeah she does do that um Monica and Denny have met her and she's she's really wonderful and um so I've, ha- I've had her since I was five years old and wow then, now that's an enduring relationship that's yeah. unusual in this yep. this day and age yeah and we've gone through a lot um we've both lost a parent um and um through through all of those years I've had a fitness coach um also who's a huge impact and a really strong believer Dean Brittenham and he was in San Diego, and he actually made a huge impact on my dad's life, and I could see just like huge changes in his life um, through Dean. Um, and then turning pro, Dean was with me from when I was like 14, and then he helped me make the decision to go pro after my first year at UCLA. 
Um, and also, I just, I just had so many people actually. My UCLA uh, coach, uh, Stella Sampras, you know Pete Sampras, I think you've all heard that name. Stella is a wonderful believer. And so I think, and the assistant coach, Rance Brown, is amazing. So I think um, God just put people in my life at certain times. Um, Vic Braden, who is a legend and, you know, is also, we lost him a couple years ago. Yeah, that's right. Um, I remember that. And he was put in my life through Dean. Um, so I had Vic in my life. Um, I have um, met Monica and Denny through um, uh, relationships and my, my dad. And so, and that's been amazing. Uh, Monica came into my life at a huge, um, just a, yeah, a, a time in my life that I just needed somebody. And, um, and I've met you all, I think, through that, going through that time, um, which, has been, which has been amazing, too. Um, also, yeah, I mean, geez, uh, it's, it's been it's Isn't that, been really isn't that cool. wild, though, Abby, yeah. this, the, the inner, this web of people, as you look back over your life mm -hmm. and say, at the right time, in exactly the right moment, God sent strategic people into my life. Yeah. And then I have to assume that he's probably strategically sending me into other people's lives as well. So there's a reciprocity, both I'm being inserted into others' lives and they're being inserted to mine. And that web is powerful, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's definitely. So when you stand up and say, hey, you know, thank you, you know, the applause and all that, and you win the Grand Slam event, you're really, when people say, look, I've got a lot of people to thank, they mean that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, a lot of, and a lot of that is God's. God's instruction in it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's this, it, it's really cool. Um, my boyfriend, Aaron Williams, I, I just have been dating for seven months, and that's also been a, a God thing, and I never would have thought I would have <laughs> met him at a tennis tournament, because we're so focused, and it's, you know, tennis courts, and back to the hotel, and we're, you know, but that's been, that's been a pretty cool thing, and just that relationship, um, you know, I've, I've struggled. We're alone. We, we don't have a union and we don't have a chaplain. So, um, on tour. And so there's not that many Christians. Um, hmm. uh, Michael Chang does a lot of his own ministry and he was one of the strongest Christians on tour. Um, but, uh, we don't really have that fellowship. So I have a really good friend, Lauren Davis. So if you're a tennis fanatic, Lauren's an up and coming American and, um, and she's a strong believer and, Aaron's met her, and I know Monica and Denny, um, I don't think you've met her personally, but you will probably this week. So, um, but yeah, she's she's just great, awesome. and her and I will get together, and even if it's just like for dinner or coffee, like it's just really good, and we kind of just see where each other are at, and yeah, I'm, I'm human, and I struggle, and I make tons and tons of mistakes, and so it's really good well, to we'll have. Well, we'll all pray for you, because we don't know anything <laughs> about that. Our church really doesn't know anything about anything about that. Well, Abby, you're awesome. We love you, and you know, you just got you know maybe 300 new fans right here. And second service, boy, you really Come pile out. them I want to see face paint. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we love you. Thanks. Great job. Great job. Isn't that good? That's just good. That's just good. It's good how God operates, isn't it? In the right time and in the right season, God sends strategic people into your lives, right when you need it. But as I said a minute ago, you also need to begin to think, well, would God maybe be interested in sending me into somebody else's life? Do I even contemplate how I impact other people? With every dollar that I give, with every moment that I spend, with every phone call I make, 
with every human interaction, you are either pushing the kingdom forward or you may be pulling it back. Jesus talked about not becoming a stumbling stone, but actually being a conduit, being light, being water, just like he was. And so that's what I want to look at this morning uh, as we continue this move through this character sketch of King David. And uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 16, because I just find this flat out bizarre. I cannot skip over this. We're actually going backwards a little bit to pick up something so we can go forwards. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 22. 1 Samuel 16, verse 22. It says, Saul sent to Jesse. Now, Jesse, remember, was David's father, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And then verse 23, it came about. Whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it in his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. So I just find this, I find this really, really interesting at the end of 16 here, where he says, uh, it just, he says, who is this guy? Let David stand before me. He's found favor. He knows. He knows he's the son of Jesse. Now I want you to go forward to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Verse 55, a few things that occurred here, uh, Goliath happens, and that's where we finished last week, and this is just bizarre, the insertion of this, you think, well, maybe somebody made a copy error or some mistake, because obviously King Saul knew well who David was, but in verse 55, it says, now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? I mean, it was not just a, uh, a little bit before that that he knew. Go talk to Jesse, see this guy, need him. He, he had an evil spirit, and David would play the harp for him. And he was right there. It was a close proximity that David was serving him and had come up out of the fields. Abner said, by your life, O king, I don't know who in the world this is. And the king said, you inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man, young man, not David, noticed as young man, almost as if he didn't even know who David was. And David answered and said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, I just find that bizarre. I mean, David had already been brought in. Who's this guy? They just bring him in. He was oppressed by this evil spirit. Uh, he, look, his life was just a mess. It was in disarray. Think we have any lives here in the Coachella Valley that are in disarray? I mean, just look at the news. I mean, it's just insane what people do. Mass shootings uh, everywhere we go. It's just people's life. The way they think and perceive reality. And, of course, the secular world just says, well, it's just some mental illness. Everything's a mental illness. Anybody who does anything wrong, just a mental illness. Look, it, I agree, but we all suffer from it. But we're relieved of it with the introduction of the Holy Spirit into our lives through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, what I find fascinating is that Saul is completely blind to the people around him relationally. Here you have a man that the Bible itself says is a man after God's very heart, David, right next to him, and he doesn't even remember who he is. He's so oppressed, he's so blinded by self-concern that he can't see God's presence in a person right next to him. 
doesn't even remember who he is. Even though he's been right there in his bedroom playing the harp for him, Saul has no remembrance. Doesn't know where he came from. Doesn't know whose son is this after he kills the Philistine. Where before he'd just known this not too long before that. I just find that interesting. Isn't that the way it is very much in our lives? I know before I came to Jesus, I would pass people by the streets. I would, waiters, waitresses, people at the club, you know, I grew up at the country club, people, you know, cleaning the clubs and doing the stuff, just walk right by people. I was so entranced in my little life and my cocoon of my world and my concerns and my worries and my all, everything that concerned me, my finances, my this, my this, my relationships, my, my, my. I couldn't even see people around me. I think that's what was happening with Saul here. He was relationally challenged, and the worse it got, the more he was oppressed. And it was a, like a snowball, and it was brutal. I can only imagine. I just find that fascinating as we conclude chapter 17, that Saul, having known David that closely, wouldn't even have any clue who he was after he killed the Philistine. That's bizarre to me. I think what we need to understand is that if we have those areas in our life where we are blind to people around us, to pain around us, to people around us, uh, don't beat yourself up. Just say, Lord, I need to get your eyes for humanity. I need your heart for human beings. I want to see as you see. And in th through the process of God answering that, he will, in fact, fulfill Isaiah 61, which is how Jesus started his ministry I came to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, and then let me paraphrase, freedom to prisoners of their own self-indulgence, self-concern, self, 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 self. Because real liberty, real liberty comes from not being too concerned about yourself. And that's why Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to wear tomorrow and what you're, you know, you're going to eat. Your father, he understands that you have need of all these things. Quit worrying about this. Well, I'm, I, need, I need to get married. I need to get this. I need, to get, I need, I need that new house. I've got to have this. I've got to have that new whatever it is. And I, I, this relationship, I have to, I have to, I have to. And then you, you don't realize that you're so, you're so looking in upon yourself that you're not liberated and, in fact, you're enslaved. It's not until you give up your life for Christ's sake. Well, how would you do it for Christ's sake? I'm giving up my life for Christ's sake. If you want to do it for Jesus' name, then begin to look around you and look for pain. Look for people who need Jesus. Get involved in their lives. Be concerned about what they do. Keep up on where they are and where they're going. Become someone who is, in fact, contrite and humble. Who are the best friends that you have? I... I I'm really fa I'm fascinated with this. I, listen to this. The concept of a broken in spirit is a selfless nature in people that is conducive to making friends. Common arrogance of the human mind being out of sight. Hasidic rabbi uh, Menachem Mendel said, There is nothing so whole as a broken heart. Isn't that, isn't that true? How so? It's a state of mind that, offer, uh, that others are drawn to. And it's very conducive to creating loving relationships. Indeed, in Matthew twenty two thirty nine, 39, Christ said, The second great principle of the law is to love your neighbor as ourselves. And a broken spirit is just what makes this possible. Further, Philippians 2, 3 tells us to consider others as better than ourselves. And this would be the ultimate state, conducive to loving friendships. 
Now catch this. This is a deep nugget again. This is a beautiful truth that we can derive. You say, well, why did David have to go through the pain that he's going to go through? He has his great things. He has anointed king, and then he, now he kills Goliath, and now he's going to begin to get public fame. He's going to go into the public eye. And yet God keeps drawing him back, drawing him back through the course of his life and humbling him and humbling him and putting him in situations. In fact, we'll see there's a point where he even has to pretend that he's uh, crazy, a lunatic, and he's living among the Philistines. He's living among the enemies to God. Why? God's doing a deep work in his heart because the best friends are those who are broken. The best friends are not those who have everything going for them, who nothing ever goes right, wrong with, who have the most money and have the most this and the most that and win all the tournaments and do all the things. You know, those are not, those are typically are not the best friends. We are drawn to people who care about us. And the only way they can be drawn to us is if they've been broken from the habit of being so self-focused that they can't even see your life. People are happy to make friends and assume that they make friends because at a distance, what do they do? At a distance, it appears that they have many friends. But in fact, what is a covenantial friend? And that's what we're going to see here in a minute with John and Jonathan and David. I want to talk to you just a moment about covenantial friends. What is a covenantial friend? Someone that, I'll be honest with you, I don't know that you can have more than a handful, maybe, probably not even more than three or four in your lifetime. I'm talking deep covenantial friends. I have some very passionate, deep friends, but I'm talking covenantial friends where anything goes, any conversation goes, where the person is there for you at all times, is not there like Job's friends to theologize when you're in pain. Just sit there when you're in pain and say nothing. Those kinds of friends... If you were to describe those kind of friends, I think of obviously Proverbs 18:24. A man who has friends must show himself friendly. And there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In other words, this even transcends a covenantial friendship in Christ, transcends family relationships. I don't care how close it is, because family won't always be there, but this covenant friends, they are so powerful and so true. A true friend sacrifices when necessary. What did Jesus say in John 15, 13? Well, it says, greater love has no man than he lay down his life for his friend. A true friend stands up and fights alongside you. That's what we're going to see with Saul and uh, uh, Jonathan and David uh, in the advent of Saul's chasing David and trying to kill him. Jonathan, even though he was Saul's very son, was there in the hard times, in the bitter times, in the times of turmoil, and risk his own life. Covenantal, a covenantal friend, according to Proverbs 27, 6, will tell you the truth regardless of the situation. Look, a lot of your friendships, you're going to tell them what they want to hear because you like to keep everything on the up and up. But a covenantial friend will tell you when you have a big old piece of food hanging out the side of your mouth and won't let you just keep going, you know what I'm saying? But it goes a lot deeper than that. A covenantial friend will be there to say, look, I care about you and love you so much that you have no idea what you're doing. When I see you treating your wife like that, it breaks my heart, and they'll begin to intervene. And they won't worry, and it'll wound you. But what does Proverbs uh, 27 say? It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. I'll say covenantal friend. But the kisses of an enemy, well, they're very deceitful. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? Judas comes and gives Jesus a kiss, deceitful. But those that would stand up, and of course, Jesus didn't need, uh, didn't need any help from his friends because he was the only perfect one. 
A true covenantal friend will be in agreement with you. Not always. Amos 3.3 says, do two people walk together if they've not agreed? Now, you may not agree on everything, but at the end of the day, don't you sometimes just agree to disagree? That's still an agreement. Let's agree that we can sometimes not see completely eye to eye, but it's not going to affect our relationship. It's too deep for that. It's too meaningful that. I'm dependent upon those covenantal friends. We talk a lot in the West, evangelical circles, about relationship with Jesus, and rightfully so. But there is a way in which you can relate to Jesus that Jesus will invade a friend's life and speak to you through a covenantal friend. I'm telling you, I've had people that said something out of a human mouth, and I'm saying, as far as I'm concerned, that came straight out of Jesus' mouth, through your mouth. They became the mouth, the hands, the feet of Jesus himself, covenantal friends. A true covenant friend is someone you can trust with anything. They walk in love, which includes forgiveness. I mean, let's describe love anyway, 1 Corinthians. Love suffers long. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't flaunt itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave improperly. seeks not its own. Do you get that? I mean, that's what's happening here. When you're a person that's always seeking quid pro quo with somebody, I did this for you, now you do that for me. I did that for you, now you owe me. If, then let me tell you something. There's no covenantal friendship in that. And if that's always your attitude towards other people, I'll give them back what they potentially can give me. You'll be a lonely and isolated person your entire life. Many people walk through life with very few friends and no covenantal friends because they've not learned to become friends. They're still not broken. People are attracted to broken people, contrite, humble people. Doesn't seek its own. It's not easily provoked. Covenantal friends, yeah, there may be, there's, I'm not saying there's never an issue, but they're not easily provoked at all. You can say something way out of context, say something that hurts, to a covenantal friend, and that covenantal friend will make he'll say, well, I understand. They must be having a bad day, or maybe they're, maybe they're struggling with something I don't know. Assume the best. Well, that, something's going on in their life, and I want to dig deeper because I love this person rather than I can't believe they'd say that to me. How in the world would they say that to me? I'm easily provoked. If you're a person that's easily provoked, you're going to struggle in the friendship department. It thinks no evil. It rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. When we think about covenantal relationship, we want it. Deep down we want it, we just don't know how to get it. Now, I'll tell you the first step, as we all know, as we've been talking about, the first step is always a vertical relationship with God will then give you the foundation to have deep, passionate, covenantal relationships on the horizontal. First, get your life right with God. Why? Because we have to get the Holy Spirit rather than an evil spirit. Don't, don't take this. Look, I'm not saying everybody's possessed by the devil. That's not what I'm suggesting to you. But there is a cloud around you when you don't know God. When you are separated from God, you can't see very far. It's foggy. Your life is foggy. What this word does, it is a light to our path. It gives us insight and understanding. 
deep, passionate understanding. Until you get your life right with God through his son, Jesus, you will live in fog. But once you've done that, the journey's not over. You need to learn to how to become a friend. I want you to go now to 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 18 here. I'm going to ask the question to you, just the first two verses here, 1 Samuel 18. Now, it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan, Jonathan was Saul's son, was knit to the soul of David. Now, I could go into that a long ways, but uh, let's just say this. It's, this is a deeper kind of relationship than, oh, yeah, I met Ted the other day. What was his name again, Ted? Yeah, and we, yeah, we played nine holes together and had a good time, went out to dinner. This is something quite different. This is a covenantial relationship. This is where two souls are knit together, knit together. And he was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. And I find that bizarre. Why? We're not given an explanation. Why did he do that? Just because this guy went out and he was so impressed? I mean, he was the king's son. This was a nobody. He'd seen this battle, clearly. But what was it? I think covenantial relationships are not ones you go out to find. They're just ones that God inaugurates in the unseen realm for you. I believe that there's nothing David could have done to force Jonathan or to curry his favor in such a way that Jonathan would take such an incredible step to, to take a move towards David and our souls are knit together. And essentially what he was doing by giving him his armor and his robe and everything, he didn't even know that David had already been anointed king. There's no indication that Jonathan knew that, but in his spirit... He was already bowing to authority, even though he was the rightful heir to Saul's empire, his own father. Somehow in the spirit, he just saw authority. He saw biblical blessing, and he loved it. I think he was loving God. I think what Jonathan was seeing is that he was loving God through David. I have, I have to bind myself Bind, and remember that word. I have to gather myself and bind myself and make myself covenantial with David. What he was seeing, in fact, was God himself. I believe, not literally God in human flesh, but God inhabiting the life of David. And we know that because it said, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, that David had the Spirit of God living and dwelling on him. And I think that's what Jonathan was responding to, and it was orchestrated by God himself. It's orchestrated by God himself. What does that do to you? Does that create a longing in, in you? I'm sure many of you are already thinking about people in your lives that have had a profound effect on you. We know the verses, Matthew 18, 20. I mean, there's good reason to want relationship and deep relationship. Not Palm Springs kind of, I've got a thousand million friends and we all, you know, and everybody, it's about that deep. I'm talking about people you can call any day, any hour. You could be in Zimbabwe, have a problem. You could call a covenantial friend, and they'd be right there, right on that next flight to Zimbabwe. It didn't matter where you are or what's going on. They would lay down their life for you, covenantial friends. Now, obviously, Jesus is our ultimate covenantial friend, is he not? 
He is there for you 24-7. Even a human being, no human being can be there for you like Jesus can. But Jesus does want to give you friends. Matthew 18, 20 says, you know, where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm going to be there in their midst. Ecclesiastes 4, 11. When two lie down together, they're, they're warmer. It's just not that complicated. How can one be warm alone? How does that even work? Solomon understood that. You just, life is better in relationship. The covenant relationship of marriage is a powerful, powerful covenantial relationship. And yet we see many relationships that ostensibly are covenantial, but we have a divorce rate of 50%. I would suggest to you that that was not biblical covenant relationship that people are entering in today. As long as my wife serves me, as long as my husband provides for me, as long as my wife looks a certain way or acts a certain way or likes to travel like I like to travel, it's almost... You know, we, we are so saturated in a world that doesn't understand covenantial relationship that it's no doubt that we become radically cynical, isn't it? Relationships, marriage, doesn't work, marriage, doesn't work, don't like this, move away, move somewhere else, move somewhere else. I find it fascinating about Billy Graham, to be honest with you. He kind of stuck it out in one place all those years. Did you see the memorial service by chance? I don't know if you happened to get a chance to see it. It was, you know where they did it? Right in front of where he grew up. And his sister said, I find this bizarre that I'm, we're doing this all right in front of my house. I thought that was hilarious. But they had, there was a continuity there. I'm not suggesting that God won't have you move. Uh, there have many, been many missionaries that God says, okay, now it's time to move. The apostle Paul was one of them. He didn't stay in Jerusalem. He was called to go to the Gentiles. But there's something beautiful about longevity and continuity in covenantal relationships. Leviticus 26, verse 8. Five can chase a hundred, but a hundred can chase 10,000. There's beauty in numbers. That's essentially what this is saying. Anyway, it gets back to what Abby and I were just kind of relating to one another, and you see the web of interdependence in her own life. There's a beautiful web that happens of interdependence in our lives. Now, <clears throat> I find this fascinating. Uh, there's one of the, gr several of the great, great theologians of our time. One philosopher, Alvin uh, Plantinga, who's the philosophy uh, head at Notre Dame. And there's another, uh, Miroslav uh, Volf, who's the head of the Divinity School at Yale. And those guys both, I think it was uh, Wolf that was quoting this, but they describe the very creation template that we see in Genesis 1. So uh, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And if you struggle to find that in your Bible, then you need to come to church at the red door more often. <laughs> Genesis 1, 1. Easiest thing to er in your Bible to ever find. And I see several of you looking for the tabs, but anyway... <laughs> That's why we give Bibles with tabs. Don't be offended. It's okay. But it's early on in the, it's early on in the deal here. Okay, so uh, Genesis 1, verse 1. I want you to catch this. <clears throat> we're going to read a few of these verses, and then we're going to go back. And I want you to remember that idea of binding together. Binding together or gathering. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created Everything in your life changes once you say, in the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, me. In the beginning, God. The earth was formless and void. 
The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated. So we started with formless and void. Now we have God separating light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning one day. This is the creative process. Are you with me? This is how creation works. There's formless and void, and then there's a separating that goes on, okay? Then God said, let there be the expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate. Again, the word separate, the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below with the expanse of the waters which were above. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered or bound, bound, gathered or bound, va in the Hebrew. It just means to bind, sometimes even like twisting together. It means to bring together. So we've got separating, and we've got binding. Separating and binding, now we see a gathering. And he gathered into one place. And let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit seed, fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, and seed in them. And it was so. Still to this day, if you want a lemon tree, Go find a lemon and you will find the seed, everything that's needed, latent within that seed to produce that tree. And then Jesus used that that language all the way through the New Testament. And the sower went out to sow and he talked a lot about seeds, small seeds being grown into great trees. So remember, when you see that and you see Jesus or the New Testament bringing this language before, this is packed with understanding for us on how we can operate relationally in the world. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. God saw, God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of heavens to do what? Separate the day from night and let them be, are you ready? Signs for the seasons and for days and for years. And I want you to catch that. The separation between night and day and seasons and years does what? It It indicates that there's a seasonal shift in your life. Just remember that in terms of a template. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night. He also made the stars and he placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So let's pick this up formless and void and he began to separate and bind together and separate and bind together and then what happened at the end and it was good what is sin do you think let me ask you what sin does Miroslav Wolf I think he says it beautifully here and again in often quoting Plantinga He said, formless and void may be the ultimate result of sin if left unchecked, but sin's more immediate goal is not so much to undo the creation, catch this, but violently reconfigure the pattern of its interdependence. Say that again. 
Sin violently reconfigures the pattern of its independence to put asunder what God has joined and join what God has put asunder. There are things in your life that God wants to separate. Why? God wants to separate me from Laura in some ways. How so? Because there's differentiation here. She's a female and I'm a male. It's good that we're separated in that way so that we can then come together and make one. If we were both the same, it would just violate that principle of separation and interdependence. If I was just like Laura and Laura was just like me, we wouldn't need each other. And God, when he created in the beginning to make it good, he created things, separated things, so that it would no longer be formless and void. So one of the problems I have with Buddhism and its very core that the goal ultimately is to ascend back into nirvana and everyone become this, you know, this one singular whole. God is not into a singular whole. He likes things to be separate and, and different. I would call it differentiation. We'll see in a minute. Not exclusion, not exclusion, but differentiation. And when it is and it's beautiful, then we have gathering and binding how can you, why would you need to bind things together that were already the same? So he separates and brings, and it brings good. Sin then comes in and says, no, I'm going to bind the things that should be separated and separate the things that should be bound. And that's what sin does. And it's like a hurricane. It's like a tornado. It's like something, and it begins to demolish. And what do we end up back? We end up back to a place of being formless and void it's so one of the problems with the Western church. We, we, because we've become so wealthy, it's like uh, Revelation 3, the Laodicean church. You become blind. You think you don't have need of anything because you're wealthy. You don't realize how blind and naked and you can't see because we stay independent and we like independence. We don't like to be bothered in the middle of the night. We don't like to be invaded. We like our privacy and our freedom. We like to go where we want to go when we want to go and we want to keep people at arm's distance not knowing that it, we're sacrificing one of the deepest principles of God's very creation, and that's interdependence. We need each other. The poor need the wealthy, but the wealthy need the poor. Men need women, and women need men. The older generation needs the younger generation, and the younger generation, I can promise you, needs the older generation. It's one of the things, you know, I realize that you can find a place where you might find the worship that's a little bit more suiting to your taste, maybe more hymns rather than what we have. Or maybe some of the young people in here would say, you know, I'd really like a lot more percussion and a lot more driving and something to get me, you know, wake me up other than just Starbucks in the morning. Some of those hymns put me to sleep. We work hard to try to stay intergenerational because I think there's an interdependence that God has formed between old and young. And you see that all the way throughout Scripture. Young men, honor older men. Don't sharply rebuke an older man. This is a culture of honor, and this is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. God uses broken things. And then he brings them together to make a beautiful whole. Anybody see the movie Seabiscuit? Tell me that wasn't a good movie. If you haven't seen that, shame on you. <laughs> it is one of the great movies of all time. You know, the very core of this movie is a broken down trainer that nobody wanted. The horse whisperer of sorts. It was a broken down rider that was actually too big, you know, to be a real jockey. 
And then plus that, he'd even gone through through the, movie, the course of the movie, he breaks his leg, and now he's really useless. And a horse that was too small and nobody wanted, and it actually is based on a true story. It's pretty good stuff. But when you bring all those disparate parts and you bind them together, though they are clearly separated by failure and longing, when you bring them together, beautiful things can happen. Let's watch this clip. You know, everybody thinks we found this broken down horse and fixed him, but we didn't. He fixed us. Every one of us. And I guess in a way, we kind of fixed each other too. I remember uh, 
when I saw that movie. And I was invited by uh, a guy who was in Aspen, Colorado. And uh, it was kind of a strange mid-afternoon. Nobody had anything to do. I had to go to the movie. And we went. It was packed out. Just completely packed out. You couldn't even find a seat. Seabiscuit was out. And I only look back in retrospect and I see I've never been in a place in my life where people worked harder to not appear broken. No wrinkles, no financial problems, no, no nothing, man. There was Aspen is the, the perpetual youth, you know. And people were so drawn to this and they were so in love with this movie and the people were just like a standing ovation and people said this is the greatest movie but they didn't they didn't understand what it was really about it was about brokenness and that brokenness isn't a bad thing it can be a powerful thing God loves a broken and contrite heart someone who says and comes and says I care more about you I really my life doesn't mean that much I'm more about you I'm more concerned about you people are then drawn to you and then the very thing that you were so desperate for and you said I only have a little bit of me anyway and now you're trying to hold on to that if you go ahead and give that away you you find it you know it's what exactly what Jesus said if you give away your life you're gonna find it but if you try to save it you'll just lose it and it looked like a lot of people were right there. They just couldn't understand that step of God's economy. I believe this whole creation template in, in Genesis 1 is a template for all of creation. Creation of life in you. Interdependence. It's not bad. We want to be financially independent. We want to be, you know, everything's about independence. We sign a declaration of independence. Everything's independent. And ultimately, God says, no, I have created you, and I've created you to do this. I've separated and differentiated you in certain ways so that you will gather together, bind, twist, and become the church. And that's what heaven's going to be like. Everybody thinking about the other guy, the other gal. Isn't that beautiful? Let me ask you the question in closing. What is love? What is love? Miroslav, again, talks about in the book of Job, and I think it's a, a very uh, discreet thing. A lot of people say, what's the purpose of the book of Job? Well, the purpose of the book of Job is not to give counsel, but if you look at the counsel, it was pretty good guys. I mean, it's a, a lot of times you look down and you think those, the Job's counselors were really mean-spirited people. They sat and said nothing for seven days. They obviously cared about Job. But God said, I don't like their counsel. But even Job was kind of on the same page with them. They were saying, well, there must be some hidden sin. Let's try to discover it because they, they were working off that paradigm. There must be sin in your life because you have problems, Job. This is severe. God would never take away from you all these things if, you, you know, there was something that's not being disclosed. We love you. We want to be, maybe they were even thinking, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know, we got to get down and dig down here. But Job was kind of working from the same template, wasn't he? How can God do this to me? Because I don't, I don't think I'm a perfect person, but I certainly have lived a righteous life enough not to justify this kind of tragedy, losing everything, my family, my wife, my, I mean, you know, his, his own wife, even though she didn't die, she, she was there to curse him and say, curse God and die. He was still working off that. But the real, the real point of all this is the very beginning of Job chapter 1. It's not the end that we learn really what Job was about. It was the beginning. It was Satan. Does Job love you for nothing? Satan asks. Does Job love you for nothing? God, if you remove the hedge around him, he'll curse you. 
And God had actually asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He loves me for nothing. And of course, Job in the end does. You can kill me, you can wipe me out, but I, by the way, you are God. Why do you love God? Because he gives you a good marriage? Gives you nice friends? Why do you love a friend? Because they give me good things, you know, they're, they're nice to me, or, you know, they're wealthy, and they can provide nice trips, or they can, they usually pay when we go out to dinner, or, you know, those kinds of things. That's why they're your friend. Let me ask you a question. Would you do that with your men? Would you do that with your wife? If she asked, why do you love me? There's only one answer. I just love you. I love you for nothing. Because if you give them a reason, well, you're beautiful. How's that going to make your wife feel when she maybe starts not feeling so beautiful? I'm serious. I'm serious about this. If you give a reason for why you love. See, God inaugurates something. Jesus comes in. That's why this is so revolutionary. Love for nothing. What did we have to offer Jesus? He just loved us for nothing and said, now go and love like I love. Just love people. You're going to need the Holy Spirit. You're going to need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do that. But just love people. Don't you want to just be loved or do you want to be loved for something? You know, I've been out here long enough to see a lot of businessmen, high-level, CEO-level guys, and they finally retire, and it drives them crazy because they thought they had all these friendships and all these relationships, but they realized that many of these relationships were strategic. They were business relationships. They were quid pro quo relationships and they feel defeated, and they feel isolated, and, they, and I think without maybe saying it, they feel, they feel disillusioned. They thought they had all this social contract with all these people, and then what ends up happening is they just realize that they were loved for something. Maybe you feel that way with your kids. Yeah, I feel like my kids just want to get in the will, or I want to feel, you know, I, I don't know that I'm loved for nothing. I wonder, I don't know, I, I, I wonder how Bill Gates, and he says, we're not going to leave our kids anything, you know. I, I wonder how his kids feel. I wonder if they're, they're more distant or they're, they're drawn to that. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Buffett, a little bit, something similar. You know, I, I don't know what that looks like. Do you feel, or do you feel like you're always a performance person? Covenantial friendships, love for nothing. See, Satan always asking, does Job love you for nothing? So if you don't love God for nothing, just why? Because he's God. He can wipe me out. I can get cancer. I, 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 I can have financial calamity. It doesn't matter. He's still God. Why should I even presuppose that there's anything, any reason? He's God. God is God. And I'm a created being. I love God because, well, because he first loved me. But I just love God. I just love God. And then take that kind of love. Many of you don't feel that. You're still bound up in religion. God loves me because I come to church. I, I read my Bible. I give away my money. I, no, God just loves you. That's the message we can take into the world, by the way. It is good news. God loves you. Billy Graham did that for 80 years. God loves you. God loves you. And he sent his son to die so that you could be gathered again, so you could be bound together with him. God loves you. And are we going to love with that same kind of love? Don't you, isn't there something deep down in you right now that just wants that? You want to just be loved for nothing? 
That's the kind of culture we want to create here. That's why I think we're going to have a seat at the table. I, I think there are many churches that want that same thing and that are doing that. So don't give me that. This is not exclusive. But don't allow the forces of exclusivity to remove you. And I'll close with this, but listen to this again in, in Wolf's book, Exclusion and Embrace. Listen to what he says. There's two things that will actually move from differentiation, just people being different, to exclusion. Number one, exclusion can entail cutting off the bonds that connect, taking oneself out of the pattern of interdependence and placing oneself in a position of sovereign independence. Isn't that the push in this valley, especially this valley? That's why you can go to some very, very poor parts of the world and see what appears to be much happier people because they've not disconnected themselves through exclusion. They've not disconnected themselves. And then secondly, exclusion can entail erasure of separation, not recognizing the other as someone who is his or her in, in, in their otherness belongs to the pattern of independence. So you can say, well, that person doesn't matter. You can pull yourself out or you can say, those people don't matter. Can I tell you right now, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you don't have a, two dimes to run together. I don't care if you have such a life of failure and so many mistakes. You have a place at church at the red door. We need you. But you know what? If you've got everything going for you and everything, and we need you too. Because God has created us so that it wouldn't be formless and void. Isn't that beautiful? Now that'll preach. That's good stuff. I got to tell you, that's good stuff. I wish I'd have come up with most of that. So uh, here's my prayer for church at the red door. We're going to have communion. I, I would encourage you. Again, what does communion mean? Common union. Community, common unity. There's something beautiful in taking the elements together, which, you know, they're setting up for you upstairs right now. If you've never taken communion, just make your way upstairs. There's going to be a few worship songs, and they'll give you a little something up there, and, and uh, it only costs $53 a piece. No, <laughs> no seriously, come, go upstairs and be part of communion. Integrate, meet people. The people, I came to church red door, nobody said hi to me. Oh, good, then come and say hi to us because we made a bad mistake. We wanted to. We want to love you. We want everybody to feel like they're part of it because we actually believe it. We need each other. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for my deficit and how narrow a lane I walk in and how much need I have in other people in this church. Lord, thank you for not creating me to be independent, but to be first dependent upon you and the power of your spirit, and then to be interdependent with other people who also love you, call the church, the ecclesia. Lord, I'm grateful. I, I, I ask right now, I ask for our church. I ask for you to bring into the lives, begin to bring into lives people right in this church, covenantial relationships caring, compassionate, dependent relationships. Father, I help, help us as a church to be contrite and to walk in humility and not feel like we're all above the fray or separate, but that we jump right into the fray and that we feed the poor, whether that be the literal poor or the spiritually poor. We're going to go into this valley 
and we're going to lay down our lives because we don't consider our lives of great value, like the Apostle Paul said, apart from you working through us. Lord, I thank you for the church, the whole church, the universal church, the local church, but especially church at the Red Door. I thank you that we have a church that recognizes in humility how much we need one another until we cross the final finish line and then stand before you one day and give an account for the life we've lived in the flesh. Lord, thank you that we can walk this life with family and do mission together until either you come back or we go to you. We are deeply, deeply grateful in Jesus' precious name. Amen, amen. We love you. Communion awaits.